Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight, today for the word of God that you've given to us. We thank you for the time that we've had to worship you. We thank you for, again, being reminded of how much you love us because you gave your own son's life in my place, in each one of our individual places. Yes, he came to give us life for the world, but that world is individuals that you know well and you love personally. And so we thank you, Father, for being reminded of that. And now, Lord, as we turn to the Word of God to see what it is you have put us here to do and what you've called us to do and to be, and most of all, why, we look to the anointing of your Spirit here today to take this Word and to breathe the breath of life. For Jesus said, my words are spirit and their life. And we ask you to breathe on this Word in the time that we have left, that it may become alive in us and touch us, motivate us, change us, Father, so that we can go out into this world and bring Christ, a living Christ, into a dying world. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, we've been looking at for most of this year why we're here, why we're here as a church, why we're here individually, why, why am I here, why are you here, why God didn't just save us and take us home where we can't get into trouble. This is the only place where we can get into trouble, but he's put us here for a reason, and God is very purposeful and very focused in what he's done. And so we've looked at the purpose that Jesus gave his disciples, which is to the church, which is to go into all the world and to preach or proclaim the gospel. And we've looked at what it means to go, and we'll talk more about that, but we've been spending so much time on what it is that we're going to go and proclaim, and that's the gospel. And we've looked at the fact that the gospel means good news. It's not just a doctrine, it's something that's, that's good news, and we've stepped back and said, well, what's so good about it? If it's really that good, why aren't we anxious to tell people about it? Other good things that happen to us, we're very, we're very willing, willing, we have to be told not to tell people about good things. And even in Jesus' day, when he did things for people, very often he would tell them, don't, don't tell anybody, and they went right out and told them. They couldn't contain the good news, and that's our whole point, is the really, truly good news is hard to contain. We've got to tell somebody then what is it about this good news, the greatest of all news, why we have to make people go tell it? Why do we have to put guilt on people? Why do we have to teach people how to do it instead of, if that means somewhere we're missing something. And we may have seen it at some point and lost track of it, or we may have never really been touched by why this is such good news. So that's why we've been spending the time to go back and look over what this is. And we've looked over a number of things, and I'm not going to go back over this, but last week we began to focus on a particular aspect of it. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says the letter of this kills, but the Spirit gives life. So if we simply teach, go to share the good news, that puts pressure on us, that puts guilt on us without understanding the heart of it. And so many times, and this is where I think it's missed so often, is we go, to, we go out to share the gospel to fulfill an obligation that we have. Because we either feel guilty because we know we're supposed to do it, or other people around us are doing it, and we don't feel as if we're doing it as much as they are. And so whatever it is, or, or even, you know, hey, I've gotten four people saved this week, and it's like I'm keeping a running tally that I can show as my report card, you know, or it's like I used to, when I preached about this in another context, I said it's as if I can put notches on my, on my six-shooter. You know, I got three more people this week. And all of the focus of that is on me. All of the focus on that, because we've asked this question. We looked last week in, in Luke 16, 15.1, excuse me, where, where it says this very simple but profound statement about Jesus. It says, the tax collectors and the sinners came to sit with him and to hear what he had to say. And the question is, why don't they come to hear us 
what we have to say since we are the body of Christ. He's the head and we're the body. They came to hear the head, a man that was more perfectly righteous. So it's not that we're holier than thou. He was holier than thou. And yet that was not an obstacle in the way. That was not a buffer in the way. Something about him drew people to him, not just to be around him and hang out with him, but to listen to what he had to say. Why don't they come to hear what his body has to say? Maybe we've missed something or we're missing something. And so we began to look at what is that. And what it really comes down to is it's the heart of the gospel. We've talked about what the gospel is. We've talked about why the gospel has been given to us. We've talked about the good news that Jesus died and paid for our sins and all of that. But what's the heart of it? What drew, and that's what drew him. The heart of, the, of God and the heart of the gospel is that despite our pride, our stubbornness, our selfishness, our, all the things that we know are wrong with us and many more that we don't know, God still loved us right where we were. Loved us so much that He gave His only begotten Son. And that's what we looked at last week. We looked at John 3.16. So you can put that up there. And we talked about this verse, which is probably the most known verse in the Bible. Most people, if they've been around very long, can quote some of it. And you see on football games and sporting events where somebody will hold up three colon sixteen to represent this. For God so loved the world. We talked last week about the key word in here is that third word, so. Because if you take that word out, then you just give a doctrinal statement of what something, some historical thing that God did for us. God loved the world, gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. But the importance of that word so is it communicates something about God. It communicates not just what God did, but why God did it. It communicates not just why God did it, but the depth of something about God, which is what was about Jesus that drew people to Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son tells us how much, how much, He loved the world by what He was willing to pay for you and for me. And we've spent time over the summer and and the end of the springtime talking about the righteousness of God and what, 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 what our future would be if Christ had not come. And the good news, of course, is that he, he did come. So the heart of the gospel is God's heart and His motive of why He gave His Son's life for you. Why would He do that? You can see in various parts of, of, the, of, the, of the New Testament, some of the writers are just astonished. John, the one who loved him as a friend and who laid with his head on Jesus' breast and that, during that last meal that they had together. John, in his letter he wrote in 1 John chapter 3, he says, Behold, look at this. Wow. What kind of love is this? What manner of love is this that we should be made children of God? He doesn't just save us so we don't go to hell. He made us His sons and daughters. We've talked about family. He brought us into His family. And He paid whatever the price was to adopt you into His family. 
most of us were raised in families where we were the product of our, of our parents' union. But there may be some out there this morning that you were adopted into your family, and the doubt can be in the back of my mind, well, how, you know, I was adopted, so I'm not really, really of the same status of the children that were born into this family. But look at it this way. They picked you out. They knew what, they, what the rest of us, we didn't know what we were getting with our four children. We're blessed with the ones we have. <laughs> but when you're adopted, you've been picked out. That means the parents knew you and out of the whole group chose you. They looked at the different opportunities and said, I want this one. With your crying, your, you know, your diapers that needed to be changed, and all the things, they said, yeah, but I want that one. We were adopted, adopted by God. Not just saved so we don't have to go to hell and we can hang around heaven, and that would be wonderful if that's all it were. But no, God did that, not just so you wouldn't go to hell. God did that so he could adopt you as his own child. We read through, we looked at, or talked about at least 1 Corinthians, 1 Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1 where it says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places just as He chose us in Him. He chose us in Him. He chose us in Him. He chose you in Him. He chose you. And understand this about God. He knows everything. And when He chose you, He knew everything you were ever going to do, everything you were ever going to think Everything you were ever going to say, ever, throughout all of eternity, He knew it, and He still, knowing all of that, chose you, and didn't just choose you in order to have you, He had to sacrifice His born Son to have you as His child. That's what the word so means. Little word, but powerful. It talks about how much God loves you. we would be holy and without blame before Him in love, Ephesians 1 says. And He predestined us, planned ahead for us to adoption, these are the words, to Himself. Not just so you could get into heaven, but so you, He could have you for Himself. I was reading back yesterday over Actually, my wife kind of reminded me of some of these scriptures in, in Isaiah where I, God's heart is breaking for Israel, His firstborn, as He calls it, His beloved. And He knows He has to discipline them and send them into captivity. But His heart, you can hear His heart breaking and saying, but I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to clean you up again. It's not he just dismissed them while well, you rebelled and I'm done with you, I'm going to start over. No, his heart broke over his child Israel. Broke over it. I was reading one book this summer that talked about how there's prophecies, I think it's in Zephaniah, where God says, but I'll go with you. Do you understand when he sent them into captivity, he went with them. When he punished them or punished them or disciplined them, he went with them. He sent prophets there to help them through the process. He didn't just cross them off the list and say, look, you've messed up and boy, have you messed up, I'm done with you. He had a relationship with him. That's why he created Israel. 
But you he was adopted as his child to himself. The heart of the gospel. Then we looked over in Ephesians chapter 2. Can you put up 4? Ephesians 2, 4. Just go down to 4. That's all good, but we're going to go down to 4. Tells us why God did it. The verse, first three verses, which we skipped, says that we were dead in our sins and transgressions. We were without hope. We had no hope. Walking according to the course of this world, serving as the sons of disobedience under the rulers and principalities of disobedience. That's where we were. That's where you were when God found you. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. He's filthy rich in mercy. He's rich in it. You're never going to run it out. You're never going to use it up. Because of his great love. What motivated him? What motivated the God of all creation to reach down and call you to himself? Because he didn't just send his son to the cross 2,000 years ago. That wouldn't have done you any good unless it became real to you and he sought you out. I've shared this with you before. If we took the time this morning to interview everyone in here and how you came to Christ, I guarantee you we would have a personal, separate, individual story for each one of you. Why? Because God worked through a path that He knew was what it was going to take to reach you and it was personally designed for each one of you. Wow. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love. The Amplified says, because of and in order to satisfy. Whoa. You know what it's like when you got a hunger down inside of you for something? You just got to have that piece of cheesecake or that cookie. <clears throat> or you ever get an itch somewhere and you just can't. You can't rest until you get that thing satisfied. God had an itch inside of him. God had a desire, a need inside of him that could only be satisfied by you. By you. By each one of you, personally. Rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us goes on to say when we were dead in our sins he made us alive together with Christ go with me to John chapter 17 that's just kind of where we left off last time we're going to jump back and forth here a little bit Jesus has just finished giving his twelve disciples or their final instructions. And then Judas leaves. So he finishes with the 11. And now Jesus has gone out. He's taken Peter, James, and John, the usual group with him. And he's now going to deal personally with what he's about to face. He's prepared his staff. And now he has to go deal personally. And he goes out above all things to pray. And in this case, we have the opportunity to listen into his prayer. This is his last prayer, at least before he went on to the cross, because there's some things he cries out from the cross. 
And the first section, he's praying to God the Father about himself, about returning and restoring the glory that he had before. And then the middle section, he's praying for these disciples, these 11 disciples, that he's now going to leave the future of mankind in their hands. But fortunately, he's going to send the Holy Ghost down to enable them to do it. And now starting in verse 20, he begins to pray for us. He said, I don't pray for these alone, that's the disciples, but I pray for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. You believed in him through the word of John. You believed in him through the word of Matthew. The prayer is, verse 21, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Look at verse 23. I in them, that's us, you in me, that they may be perfect, that means complete in one, that the world may know that you have sent me, and that the world may know that you have loved them, that's us, just as you have loved me. That's one of the most astounding statements in the Bible. I shared with you at the end last week, the first time I saw that, and I could not get the words out of my mouth. Just like I had trouble getting the words out of my mouth that I've been, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that I've been made the righteousness of God in Christ because I know me, know me. That's literally saying that they may know that you've loved them just as you've loved me. He's not asking God to love us just as He loved Jesus. He's asking that this may be one so that the world may realize that God loves you and me just as He loves Jesus. I have no problem believing God loves Jesus. I have no problem believing that God loves Jesus and that Jesus loves God. No problem, and I would venture to say you probably have no issue with that either. But to believe that God loves me as much as He loved Jesus, this is why we have to learn to read the Bible by faith. Because here's the issue, I know me just as you know you. And I, the thinking is, well, I understand why He'd love Jesus, because Jesus did everything He was supposed to do. Jesus was perfectly obedient. Jesus was righteous. Jesus was good. Jesus did everything the Father wanted Him to do. Of course, He would love Jesus that way. But I, <laughs> I haven't exactly done everything I was supposed to do all the time. And I've sometimes had some thoughts I wouldn't really want broadcast in heaven. And, I, you know, if I start looking at God loving me like Jesus, wait a minute, that's the block we have because why would God love me as Jesus? Because I'm not like Jesus. I haven't lived. But wait a minute, there's a problem with that. That's not what the Word says. And here's the problem. We think the Father loved Jesus because of what Jesus did. And since Jesus did everything right, of course the Father loves Him. But now we bring it over to me, and I haven't always done everything right. 
So therefore the Father, He might love me more than He loves you because I may have done more things right than you or He may love you more than He loves me because you've done more things right than me. Just but, but He loved Jesus perfectly because Jesus did everything perfect, but that's not why God loves. God doesn't love Jesus because He did everything perfectly. And God doesn't love me as much as He loved Jesus. The only way He can love me as much as He loved Jesus is not because of what I've done. It's because of what He's like. We're not going to take the time to go there, but in 1 John, it really gives the answer. He says, because God is love. That verse does not say, God loves a lot. That verse does not say God loves, God is full of love and overflowing with love. That's not what the verse says. The verse says God is love. And this may not fit our society today. But no matter what I do, I'm still a man. I could try to be something else, but I'm still a man. I'm not getting into that issue, but what I'm saying is, I am, my point is this, I, I, I act like I do because that's what I am. I don't try. It's like, and so God doesn't love because He wants to. God doesn't love us because it's the right thing to do. God is love. It's His nature and he acts out of his nature. Whether it's on Jesus or whether it's on you and me, it's God's nature to love. He can't not love. Just like he can't not speak truth. Because he is truth. In fact, truth is whatever he says. So he automatically speaks truth. He is love. It's important to understand that distinction. And so He's loved you and me just as He loves Jesus. Now let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. I've been praying this for years and I'm watching something happen. I better go there too. Ephesians chapter 3. I was in here this morning. There we go. We're going to pick up in verse 14. This is Paul praying here. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you. So Paul's praying this for the church at Ephesus so we can pray this for ourselves and for our family and for this church. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. There it is again. According to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might. That word is the word dunamis which means power of God. That we might be strengthened with might, with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Stop a second. Why would Paul have to pray that we'd have to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in our inner man? For what he's about to ask God to do, he's saying they need to be strengthened inside. They need not just the, the, the gift of my spirit, they need the power of God inside of them for this. 
What is it he's going to ask God to give us, put inside of us, that we need to be strengthened and prepared for? You know, they, when they're going to redo a, rehab a building, sometimes they, the first thing they'll check is the foundation. And if the foundation is weak, they have to shore up the foundation. They have to strengthen the foundation before they can do improvements to the building because the foundation determines what you can build on top. And so when they do the original construction, they have to make sure that the foundation is strong enough to support what's going to be built on top. But if you're rehabbing a building, one of the first places you've got to go look at is, is the foundation solid? Is it safe? Because otherwise, what we're going to improve the, top, the, the building with, on top of it, it's not going to last. So they'll have to go in sometimes and they'll shore up, they'll strengthen the foundation of it so that it can hold what the builder's about to do. God, what, what Paul's asking them, says, Father, you've got to strengthen Strengthen them. You've got to shore up their inner man. Strengthen their inner man for what I'm going to ask you to do. So what he's going to ask them to do doesn't give us goosebumps and just feel good. There's something about the life and the power of God he's going to talk about here. Pray about. Verse 17. And this is it. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, I thought Christ is in me. He is. If you're in Christ, He's in you. But the word dwell means more than just exist. God wants to live His life through you. God wants to live His life in you, for you, and through you to the world that's out there, which is why He's left us here. The world out there cannot see what God's like. Jesus says that. He says, they don't know you. They rejected me and they'll reject you because they don't know my Father who sent me. But God wants them to know Him. And instead of coming down and appearing in heaven as a cloud on a cloud, He's chosen to come down in a very tangible form through you and me. That He might live. That Christ might dwell in us. Live His life in us, for us, and through us. Being rooted, He can dwell in our hearts, but we must be rooted and grounded in that love. Two different ideas. Rooted is what happens to a plant, a healthy plant, when a tree gets planted. It has a thing called a taproot. And it goes down into the soil for two purposes. It goes down into the soil to begin to build a stability so that that tree is not going to fall over or blow over. This terrible storm we had last month, most of those trees I went by that fell down, if you look at them, they were rotten inside. The root system had died. There was no root system to hold that tree against that strong wind. And so what Paul's praying is in order for Christ to dwell in us, I mean dwell in us in a way that we are in, He's impacting the world around us, through us, not just we're sitting safe in church saying praise God, glory to God, hallelujah, and go back out into our world and just smile at people, so that we're impacting the world instead of the world impacting the church. We've tried it through all kinds of means and most of it hasn't worked. Maybe the reason it hasn't worked is the same reason they don't come to listen to us. These men turned the world upside down. That's what the testimony about them was. 
rooted and grounded in love. Our taproot for the church is in love. The taproot, the source of life for the church is in love. Verse 18, and that we may be able to comprehend or understand with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Stop there a second. Paul is saying, God, I've got a grasp of it now. The love that Christ has for us, that you have for us in us, has a width to it. It'll go so far, so wide. It has a depth to it. It'll go down to the very... Psalm 139 says, Even His Spirit will go down to the doorway of hell. Wherever you go, you can't get away from His Spirit, from the love of God. It's in Christ. Some of you were down in that pit. Some of you were rescued by Christ from the lowest of situations and brought up out of that mire and muck. Some of us were brought out of the heights. I've shared with you before, many people go to reach people, the down and outers. But what about the up and inners? I've worked with them as a lawyer in big firms. They're the most, some of the most lonely, scared, hurting people. And we look at them and say, well, you know, we would never, God would never go to them. They're just as lost. They're just as hurting their families are falling apart. When I left that law firm in Boston to go to Bible school, I sat with one of the managing part, the lead partners in his office. Young fellow, worked with him for a number of big cases. There were tears in his eyes as I shared with him. He said, why are you leaving the profession? I said, because God's calling me to do something else. I had another partner come into my office and tried to speak. He couldn't. He was crying. These are lawyers crying in my office. Why? Because what I was about to do defied the cust- what you do. I was walking out of a large job and a future because they kept saying, what can we give you? What can, can we promote you? What can-? I said, you can't do anything. And this partner looked at me with tears in his eyes and he pointed to this credenza and as you do, you look out over the beautiful Boston Harbor And on his credenza are the pictures of three young girls. And he said, John, you see this beautiful office? And he pointed to those pictures. This is what it cost me, my family. Wow. The love of Christ will go up into the top floor of a law office, It'll go into the boardroom. It went into the boardroom of Raytheon 30 years ago. And the chairman and CEO got saved. He led a former managing partner of the second largest law firm in Boston, who was the chief counsel to the president in the Watergate affair, Chuck Colson. And God reached him. The height and the depth and the width. So that his church you and I, His people, would come to know how far Christ will go 
how even to bringing people into your homes that you're not comfortable with to take care of them and to minister to them. Where would, where would Jesus go? In you, that's where he wants to go. And each, for each one of us, it may be something different. That we might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. And to know, that word know in Greek means know by experience, not just know about. Have a personal knowledge of the love of Christ. Verse 19. To know by experience, because He's living in me, the love of Christ which passes knowledge, which goes beyond my mind's ability to grasp. Look at this. That you may be filled. This is astounding. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus was that they would be filled, filled with all, all of the fullness of God. But the way we're filled with the fullness of God is to know the love of Christ, the breadth and length and height and depth, the extent of it. Paul's saying, Father, that the, that the church at Ephesus, that the church at Seekonk, that Christ may dwell, actually live in them. Not just have goosebumps and feel good on Sunday morning and when I pray, but that He may actually be able to live in them and through them out into the world, into their workplace. Being rooted and grounded in this love and they may come to know together, all of us communally, together, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know by experience because we're experiencing Him as He flows out of us the love of God, the Christ that passes understanding. And, all, and the goal of this is so that we will be filled up with all of God's fullness. Why? Because what is God? He is love. In order to be filled with His fullness, we have to be filled with His love. And His love is action, not just emotion. Say, oh, Pastor, this is, this is, this is, yeah, I just can't see this happening. Well, let's look at the next verse. Now unto him. Now unto who? Not unto us. Now unto him. Now unto him who's able. See, we read those verses and we look at ourselves and say, <laughs> oh God, that can't ever happen here. I mean, I know we're a loving community because we come in and we pat each other on the back and shake hands and say, how are you? I'm blessed. How are you? I'm blessed, you know. But we don't really get involved in each other's lives. Then there's the world out there. <laughs> you know, God, how do we get from here to here? I just look at what we are and I look at myself and I look at how can we do that? But God's promise is He's able. He's able. Now unto Him who is able. Say this with me. God is able. God is able. 
God is able. He's the one we're talking about. Remember Paul would be in this prayer that he would strengthen us with his power and his ability in the inner man. So that he could dwell in us, live his life and his desire and his will through us. And now what he's going to say is, don't get upset because I'm able. And what's he able to do? He's able to do exceedingly abundantly. If you look at that in the Greek, it is building on top of itself. It is a hyper, super abundance. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above or beyond all that we ask or think. Now stop there. That means we've got to ask or think something. Because where God's ability kicks in is at the end of what you can think or ask. When you've come to the end of what you can think or ask, what you can see, that's where God's ability kicks in. So we've got to take the limits off of what God can do here through us. We've got to take the limits off of what God can do through my family or through my life or through me. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, how educated you are. It doesn't matter anything about the circumstances of your life. I don't see anywhere in here where Paul's saying, God, they're a mess. I, this is hopeless, God. I, you're going to have to find somebody else. No, he said, under you, him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above or beyond all that we can ask or think according to the what power, that's that same word, that works in us. So the beginning of this prayer, Paul prays that you would strengthen them by your spirit in their inner man with might, with power. And at the end of this prayer, he says that God's going to be able to do this according to that same power that wants to work in us. Beyond what we ask or think, but we've got to ask or think something for Him to go beyond. We've got to begin to believe Him for things. We've got to begin to ask Him, begin to open our hearts and minds to allow Him to think through us, to see things in His terms. Not in terms of, I can't do this and we can't do that. But God's the God of I can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So God's challenging us to take the limits off of us because there's no limit on what He can do. And allow Him to work through us. And what He wants to work through us is to demonstrate His love in tangible ways. Because then the gospel, that's what Jesus did. He did two main things until he went to the cross. He preached the gospel and he ministered to people's needs. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he restored the woman's son back to him. He met people's needs. He even fed the church when they were out there for three days. You stay here for three days, we'll feed you too. No, <laughs> no God will. <laughs> Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13. Now, I've shared this deep revelation with you before, but some of you may not have heard it, or you may not have entirely grasped the depth of this concept. But 1 Corinthians chapter 13 lies between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Make sure you write that down, because when you get to heaven, God's going to ask you that. But there's a principle involved. Paul is writing this letter to a 
church at Corinth. And he's writing this letter to correct certain things in this church. The beginning of this letter, Paul addresses them, and we can see a little bit from what he's addressing what this church was like. It was a very spiritual church on the outside. The gifts of the Spirit were flowing apparently in great abundance, and as a result, they thought they were very spiritual people. They were prophesying all over the place. They were having words of knowledge, and all those things, those nine gifts are listed in chapter 12 that begins before this, and then chapter 14 picks up and focuses on several of them. So there's a section here really talking about the gifts of the Spirit, and chapter 13 really is, we call it the love chapter, but it's really addressing ministry, the gifts of the Spirit, people, God working through people. And in the beginning of this letter, Paul talks to them and says, you're carnal, which is not a compliment. He says, you're acting just like the world. You're, you belong to God. God lives in you, but the world can't see any difference between you and the world because you're acting and talking just like they do. There's envy and jealousy and strife and there's fighting among you instead of the unity and the love that the church is called to. And so we see this in the way they, fun- they operate in the Lord's table. They were divisive. Some of them sat in this corner, some in that corner. Some of them got drunk. Some of them had a picnic over here and others were starving back there. There was just division in the whole church. They were, and Paul called them very immature as Christians even though these gifts were flowing because God, the Spirit of God will flow through anything that's open but that doesn't mean you're spiritual in God's eyes. So in order to bring focus back to this, in order to get down to the... Because what they were doing is they, were, they thought they were flowing in God but they were missing the heart of God. They were missing the heart of ministry. They were doing right things and good things that on the outside looked fine, but the heart of what was God, is God was not there. And this is God, how God sees that heart. So even when we go share the gospel, if we're just sharing the gospel and we don't have this heart, this is how God sees it. Even if you respond to, to open your home up to what opportunity we heard today, but you don't do it for the right motive, this is how God sees it. This is the issue to God. You can get everything right and miss this, and you've missed it. You can get so many things wrong, but if you're doing this, you'll hit it, because this is what matters to God, because what care, God cares about is, am I getting communicated? Am I able to touch people? And apart from this, God can't touch anybody, because it is His essence, it's who He is. So let's read through 1 Corinthians 13, at least part of it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. He's referring back to the gift of tongues that he just talked about. But I'm not doing this out of love. This is how God hears it. I've become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith that I could remove mountains but have not love in God's eyes. God's not impressed with your faith. He's not impressed with my faith. He's not impressed with you speaking in tongues or singing in tongues. Because if I can do all of that, but I'm not doing this out of love, I'm nothing. It's not, you know, good try, great effort. You get a 25 or a 65, it's zero. Unless it's motivated by God's love, unless it's communicating God's heart, we fail completely. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. So now Paul's going to talk to them about love, and this is a section we use so often. 
But as we go through here, notice what he doesn't tell us. Paul does not give us a definition of love. He doesn't say love is this. Because I believe if he did that, that's what we'd spend our time on and thinking, studying, looking at the Greek, the Hebrew, you know, looking at all the analysts, analysts especially the, pat, the preachers. But instead he tells us what it looks like when you see it. It's like the old Supreme Court justice when he was, they were wrestling with the issue of pornography and they're trying to come up with a definition of it. He says, I can't define it, but I can sure tell you when I see it. Well, I'm not sure they can anymore. What does love look like? Love suffers long and is kind. It does not envy. It does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. That word also means arrogant. Verse 5, it does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. These are all the things it doesn't do. It, does, it is not provoked. Remember we talked about that the root of sin, not the fruit of it, the root of sin is self. The things we do wrong, that's the fruit of it. But the root of sin is self. Love is not, this kind of love is not founded on self. It's not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. It never runs out. It never ends. Because God never fails. If you walk in love, God's kind of love, you will never fail. You may look like you're failing, people may think you're failing, but in the end, you will not fail. Then he goes on and says, where their prophecies, they'll fail. Where their tongues, they'll cease. All these gifts of the Spirit that he's talking about, they're going to fade away because they have a limited purpose. They'll vanish. Verse 9, but we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is the perfect has come, I don't believe that's the Bible. I believe that's Jesus. When the complete has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. We won't need the gifts of the Spirit because we'll have Him. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, understood as a child, thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. But now we see in a mirror dimly. Now, we don't see God purely. We have to look at Him through the, the, the evidence that He's given us, which is through people, through gifts of the Spirit, but through people also. But we're not seeing Him Clearly as I can Tim. I'm looking at Tim. I don't have to guess what Tim looks like because I'm seeing him clearly. And when he comes back, we're going to see him clearly. John says we're going to know him as he is. Wow. And I shall be known just as I am known. Verse 13. Now abides, right now, faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Because God is love. I want to read through verse 4 through 8 in the Amplified. Love endures long and is patient and kind. Love never is envious, never boils over with jealousy. It is not boastful or vainglorious or prideful. It does not display itself haughtily or in a proud way. 
It is not conceited, arrogant, or inflated with pride. It is not rude or unmannerly, especially on the highway. It does not act unbecomingly. Love, God's love in us, listen to this, does not insist on its own rights or its own way. For it is not self-seeking. When I find that I'm when I get back at somebody the other day on the way home I had something happen that hasn't happened to me for 30 years I got stopped for speeding <laughs> I was driving down a road that I don't go down a lot talking to somebody in the car just really talking away not paying attention and the road looked like, you know, the speed limit I was going at was, but the speed limit was a lot lower than that road looked as if it should have been. <laughs> and I was very polite. I mean, showed me, he showed me the speed. I was doing it. There's no question. And I said, I didn't realize that it was that speed limit here. And he says, you passed two signs. And he was very nice and polite. And I was nice and polite back. And then when he finished and blessed me and I went on my way, <laughs> what's going through my mind is, I've driven around, I've been driving over 35 years probably since I've had a ticket. I go over these roads all the time and it's like, I'm, I'm finding myself starting to get angry at him. And I went, wait a minute, John. I broke the law. I went faster than I was supposed to go. And what I found myself was coming up with arguments to defend myself, to get angry at him. And on the surface I was nice and polite and really it wasn't until afterwards and I began to think back over it. And then these verses began to come to me. See, the more you walk in this, the more the Spirit of God has ways of pointing to you and touching things in your heart. Saying, you know what? Look at this in there. There's all you're concerned about is you in there. I mean, it's dressed up nice and spiritual. And, but, but really what you're concerned about is having your own way, what they did to you. So I prayed for him. No, God bless him. The best way to bring this change about, if you're having trouble with somebody, pray for them. And I don't mean God get them. I mean God bless them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We've got to end this. It's not touchy, so it's not self-seeking. It's not touchy, fretful, or resentful. It takes no account of an evil done to it. No account. It pays no attention to a suffered wrong. It does not rejoice in injustice but in unrighteousness, but rejoices with right, right and truth prevail. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes, is ever ready to believe the best of every person. Its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances. It endures everything without weakening. Love never fails. Now I challenge you to read through that and in place of love put God. I'll just highlight some things. God does not rejoice in injustice or unrighteousness but rejoices in the right and the truth. God does not make, does not insist on his own rights. God is not self-seeking. 
He's not touchy or fretful or resentful. Aren't you glad? He takes no account of evil done to him. He does not... He, he, he bears up under anything and everything that comes, and some of it comes from us. God is ever ready to believe the best of every person, including you and me. God's love for us is fadeless under all circumstances, and His love for us endures everything without weakening. God's love for us never fails, never fades out, never becomes obsolete, never comes to an end the way we have to this morning. The heart of the gospel has to be this kind of love. And if we're trying to preach the gospel without this kind of love, then it counts as nothing in God's eyes, and it doesn't produce the fruit that we're here to produce. We represent Christ in the earth, and we cannot represent Him unless the motive for everything we do is love, which means it's now incumbent upon us to learn this kind of love and begin to walk in this kind of love. And next week, we'll pick up on how to do that, begin to talk about how to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. We thank you for as we read through these verses and realize that that's what you've done for us. That's what you've displayed towards us. Some of us were down and out at the very depth of society and you came and rescued us. Some of us were really at the top and you came and saved us, and you brought us to your own. The foot of the cross, the ground is level. We've all come through the same way. And today we've seen again that what motivated you and everything you do for us is the incredibly deep and wonderful love that you have for us. And so, Father, we end today by agreeing with Paul in his prayer that you strengthen us individually and here as a church with your spirit in our inner man, with might, that Christ may be able to live here, not just on Sunday morning, but live through us. That being rooted and grounded in this kind of love, we may come to know together as a community the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding so that we might be filled with all of your fullness. Our confidence is that you're able. And so we offer ourselves to you and we ask you to do this in our lives and in this place and know that you're able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask according to the power of your Spirit who is in us.